Welcome to this episode of Energy Radio, a podcast by CEM Engineering with the goal of giving you the knowledge and the tools and the power to manage your energy. Welcome to episode 17 of Energy Radio. On this episode, we have a celebrity in our midst. We have Mr. Dave Tykrobe, somebody that uh, we have uh, gotten to know. Martin's known for years and we've gotten to know as a firm and um, live in Niagara and uh, just kind of uh, dropped in today and we're really pleased that you're here Dave so welcome thank oh, you for joining us my pleasure Matt and I'm welcoming the opportunity to kind of share some of my insights on energy yeah it's gonna this will be fun and um, before we dive in Dave maybe just a brief bio on you know kind of you and and where you've been what you're doing now and then there's some great topics we could have here to kind of jump into so sure so yeah my background's about three decades in the energy space i say that uh, i started in the marine diesel space where okay. pretty heavy bunker or other things were used as fuel so each generation i keep cleaning up my uh my credentials on the fuel supply and now looking at hydrogen and uh, renewable natural gas but uh, within that space uh, about 26 years was with Enbridge many mm -hmm. different careers within that organization uh, some of the most gratifying was probably in the alternative and emerging technology space making investments in next generation technologies that were up and coming and that's really brought me to you know a greater focus on hydrogen renewables for pipelines uh, electric microgrids and that's led me to my own company triple e energy advisors okay and looking to do a fair bit on the policy advocacy front to help okay. uh, diversify really where and how we get renewable energy and with your with your new venture triple e energy advisors yes. get the name right uh are you looking like who's your target you know, who's the best people you can serve with your breadth and depth of skills i think there's uh, a fair bit of work to be done on the policy front so yes. some of the industry associations okay. I think are uh, clearly interested in some of the help that I can bring uh, additionally engineering firms that want to diversify and kind of move from maybe their core business today to some of these up-and-coming solutions that whole decarbonization of energy is growing in its uh, visibility and it's more than that it's starting to become something that has to move mainstream and so some of the uh, ideas I have bringing the mainstream I can collaborate with those engineering firms yeah I, I was at it reminds me I was at IDEA last week the International District Energy Association they had their campus energy event down in Denver so all the colleges and just decarbonization was everywhere in every conversation and what struck me was it's it's really it's the right thing to do but for them the pressure is really acute because every year there's a new batch of students and you know they're all really advocates for these social causes right and saying and they they come in with no frame of reference of what the university's been doing for 25 years so they expect the world in terms of you know why are you burning natural gas or in these land grant schools why are you burning coal right and so that whole decarbonization thing is i think really hitting that campus sector first it was just fascinating to watch over the course of three days it's, yeah it's it's real for them it, it's real i I'm hopeful that we can adjust the dialogue actually and mm. make it a broader discussion because uh, you know clearly it's it's something that if we stay too narrow as to how we think we're going to get to that future where we're without emissions or very low emissions um, it's going to be a challenge unless we figure out how to bring more tools to the fray and pipelines instead of being something to oppose or something to be embraced as a uh, key delivery channel for renewable energy but yes we'll talk a little bit yeah, about yeah, that yeah, yeah just before we move off of your time with Enbridge 
I've always been intrigued by the fact that of the two kind of utilities, the gas and the electricity, you know, at least from my purview, on the gas side, there was, there was, you know, DSM was kind of always there, and which seems contradictory to a gas utility that they're trying to use less. And then, you know, all the stuff that you've been working on and others trying to really diversify. I don't know if I've seen that. They're catching up now, but on the electricity side, they weren't as quick movers, uh, I don't think, in terms of both conservation and um, also, you know, kind of diversifying. Why, why do you think that is? I think, uh, you know, I was very impressed in my time with the gas utility space. Um, their breadth, their scale, I think gave them a lot of flexibility mm -hmm. as well. Uh, there was a time where, you know, something that people wouldn't look at as innovative today, things like uh, rental equipment programs, your water heaters. Yes. Grew into renting boilers and furnaces, uh, rooftop makeup air units. Uh, the ability to take those platforms and say, right, it may not be as economical as people want, but when the right packaging with a rental program, I can bring that next generation of efficient technology to the forefront. Uh, the HVAC market for heating, ventilation, and air conditioning has changed immensely, but uh, the utilities in the gas space did immense work to break down barriers to that next generation equipment. Mm -hmm. uh, I think as well, the scale and breadth of their employee base gave them a lot of flexibility to say, right, our customers are gonna benefit if we yeah. can make them more efficient. Uh, keeping industrials in the area by making them more efficient was better than losing an industrial to an offshore production. And you know that's cascaded through their mentality as a utility, I think. And the electrics are getting there. Yes. Um, but the sad state, I'd say, in at least Ontario where I live, and I think this is still mainstream in many of the electric domains, the politics gets far too involved. Mm -hmm. And it's tough for the electrics to say, all right, I'm going to chart a course between now and the next decade or two um, because they get whipped pretty hard by the call yeah. it government of the day's right. priorities. Yeah. yeah. That, the piece you had about customer service from the gas side, I'm so intrigued by that because how you said it, it kind of has permeated everything. Like the reality is it's perme permeated CEM because Martin started his career at Union and, all, and Union Gas and all the learnings about, you know, you, you call on your existing customers first and you try to serve them first. And, you know, you just the, the rhythms and the approach to customer service. I mean, it's that's so true. It permeated that culture. And, and, by, and by extension, to your point, you know, they understood how changing the landscape would help their customers. All, that, that's why they did it, you yeah. know, ultimately. So. And, and the reality is in today's world of moving to a carbon constrained environment. Yes. Um, yeah, efficiency should be number one. Right. The reality is as we bring different solutions forward as the price of electricity or fuel goes up because of either it's uh, uh, carbon pricing in one area, could be the renewable content in another, uh, it could be the need to modernize the electric grid and substantial capital infusions adding to cost. Um, by helping customers manage what they use and use less, they're going to manage their bill, but they're also going to be a better uh, footprint for that environmental target that we're all aiming for. Yeah, totally. So one of the, you mentioned kind of new and emerging technologies near the end of your tenure at Enbridge, you were very involved in this 
Power to Gas project. Talk, talk to us about that. Yeah, so Power to Gas is uh, becoming more mainstream in different parts of the globe here in North America, still fairly new. Uh, but think of it as uh, sector coupling in one way. Um, uh, in Australia, they'd call it hydrogen hubs. Um, mm. In Europe, sector coupling would mean convergence of wires, pipelines, transportation space. And the core of it is a technology called water electrolyzers. So DC electricity, water into a device that basically will split that water molecule into hydrogen and oxygen. In many cases, we just vent the oxygen to the atmosphere, uh, but that hydrogen is now recovered. And if the supply of electricity is from clean or renewable supplies, you now have a clean or renewable supply of hydrogen. And the beauty is really in the flexibility of that once you have the hydrogen. Mm. You can direct that energy now to long-term storage by injecting in the natural gas grid. Mm. You can store it, bring it back to the electricity grid through existing gas-fired generators. You could use fuel cell stationary products to bring that back as electricity. Uh, but you can now start to target the transportation sector with more tools than just electric vehicles. Uh -huh. So a fuel cell electric vehicle would have a fuel cell, small battery, yes. but your supply is now hydrogen to create the energy needed for transport. And in heavy duty trucking, in rail, we're seeing Alstom uh, in Germany bringing fuel cell commuter trains. Uh, completely eliminating the need for overhead electric infrastructure for electrified rail. Hmm. I think when you start to look at what uh, I brought forward for Enbridge, you know, uh, they sent me out to find energy storage. That hmm. was the real mantra, and that's becoming a bigger need for today's economy. Yeah, it's often said if you like wind and solar, you're going to have to love storage. Right, right. To that, I add that if you love storage you're gonna have to look at pipelines. Mm. And that's the next phase. Uh, we brought uh, North America's largest uh, power to gas plant at two and a half megawatts to service the electric grid. Yes. It starts its life in what we call grid stabilization. Okay. Okay, as we bring more renewables, we get more variable supply. Yes. We have variable demand. Yes. You need to smooth that out in a second by second basis, or if you don't, you end up with a problem like the 2003 blackout through much of the Eastern US and Central Canada. Hmm. And that grid stabilization is something the electrolyzers provide. Hmm. You can add either more generation or take generation off, or you can add more load or take load off to provide the same stability. So do you, do you see it as a technology that plays in Kind of these ancillary markets where they there's, so, there's different services they can sell that's not maybe energy it is very much uh one player in the ancillary service market and that would be what that plant that we brought into service in markham ontario is today providing okay uh that second by second frequency control really? grid stabilization uh co-producing the hydrogen my hope is the next phase will be moving to taking that hydrogen injected into the natural gas grid and now we are affording consumers vast, cost-effective, existing seasonal energy storage. So let me unpack that for a minute. So you're saying that currently the, cur the pro project you did is only, the hydrogen is currently not a captured benefit? It's, 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 it, o it's current only 
commercial benefit is the service it's providing to the grid? So in, in the way that project will start um, under grid stabilization, it will store um, hydrogen for um, about eight megawatt hours worth. Okay, so there's, on, there's um, on-site on-site storage. storage okay and in addition to the electrolyzer providing that grid stabilization through variable load there's also a fuel cell that is also providing okay. power back okay um, in essence the early ancillary service contracts were forcing just about all energy storage technologies to behave like a battery i see there's nothing wrong with a battery but let's be honest you know two four eight hours storage that's that's a lot yes if you want to do a bit more you do things like pumped hydro compressed air energy storage and even there you're limited to hours or a couple days yes um, people do not understand the vastness of the gas storage network right so few stats yeah peak Day for the electric grid here is about 24,000 megawatts. In equivalent terms, the peak day for the gas grid is over 80,000 megawatts. Wow. That's three wow. and a half times. Yeah. Um, and, and today we have the, on uh, both electric and gas, but we have the infrastructure to support that. You know, it, underground, we have the, the infrastructure exists, for 80, 85,000 megawatts. Bought and paid for yeah, every yeah. winter. It keeps the homes you know uh heated it keeps the factories running yeah now why would we not use what we already have before we build something new yeah yeah. and yeah. that's where the power to gas becomes that sector coupling or that hub between wires and pipelines i refer to it as a new inner tie we think nothing about building a connection to have electricity shared between ontario and new york state um province to province, state to state. Yeah. Why would you not have a new inner tie between your wholesale electric grid and your wholesale gas grid? Hmm. And now you have all that storage available to you. And I, I need to touch on the costs of this. Yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm an advocate for battery storage. I'm looking at integrating that with my solar system on my house. Oh, cool, yeah. Okay, uh, I have solar thermal, I have solar PV, hmm. I have an EV in the driveway but I'll never get rid of that natural gas connection because I know it's connected to the biggest gaseous battery in the province. And from a cost perspective for heating energy, you can get a kilowatt hour of storage for one third of a penny. Hmm. So I'm just gonna leave that with you for Thank a moment. You. Yes. You can figure out how to cut that penny into thirds. It's an American penny as well, so that's, that's good. Okay. Now take the battery storage that I will probably invest in for my house. Yes. Uh, let's say it's a 10 kilowatt hour battery. Let's say it has 10,000 cycles over its life, 100,000 cycles. Yes. Um, I'm probably gonna have to invest seven to $10,000. Wow. I can get that same storage out of the gas grid for $350. Hmm. Wow. You just should not ignore right. that type of economics. The environmental piggy bank is only so big. Yes. If we really care about decarbonizing the economy, figure out how to use everything that we have first before we build new. So then, you know, you, you walk around, you go to conferences and, 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 and everything, you know, we had 
we had Richard and, and, and Tim in here and it's all about, you know, electrification, right? And, 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 you know, electric vehicles and electric heating and, you know, on and on and on. Um, and in a green, you know, grid like we have, it kind of makes sense. But why, I, I also, you know, get the penny analogy. What, why are we not seeing a huge uptick of, of, of power to gas? I, I think, let, let's be fair, it's not just power to gas, it's why do we make the assumption that if we are going to bring renewables to the consumer, everything needs to come in electric. Yes. The idea of renewable pipeline fuels, renewable natural gas, hopefully yeah. we'll talk a bit more about that. Yes. Hydrogen that is either pumped directly to fill a vehicle as a fuel cell electric vehicle, uh, injected in the pipeline or stored until it can be brought back as electricity, um, those kind of renewable fuels have not been part of our low carbon dialogue. Yeah. We've visually looked and said, gee, I can understand that solar panel. I understand that wind turbine. People may not like all those, that's debatable, but they at least understand that's renewable. There's, and they're, they're simple to get your head around. Somewhere buried under the ground yeah, is yeah. all these pipeline networks and they carry a lot of conventional fuels today. Yeah. But there's been a missing dialogue and it's, I, I, th there's a number of barriers to this, but we need to embrace pipelines for renewable fuels like renewable natural gas, hydrogen injections, and supplies of things like conventional natural gas that we will decarbonize. Yeah. If we can actually take the carbon away as an environmental liability at the end use, Aha. now we've got something that cost-effective natural gas today without the carbon liability could also play a role. Hmm. Why would we not embrace pipelines to supply that? So we, so we have simple to understand solar and wind. Everybody can get their head around it. Uh, we have electric vehicles which are being marketed very well and everybody gets it. And then we have pipelines uh, that are, you know, causing, uh, you know, railways to be shut down. And, you know, so how do we bridge that? The two couldn't be more far apart in terms of public perception. Where, where does that dialogue have to happen to actually, you know, make it a reality? So one from the, I, I think it's unfair to get the public to just, say, all right, um, the light bulb went off, I get it. I think, you know, energy mm. policymakers, energy regulators, it starts with them okay. engaging industry. So you've got one penny. Yes. Now I'm gonna talk about the conventional cost of natural gas, renewable natural gas and electricity, because okay. this is where yeah. I think we can start to get the consumer totally. on site. Totally. But the first thing before we talk cost is we need to get energy regulators, and the industry policymakers talking in terms of cost in equivalent terms. Hmm. In Europe, they sell gas by kilowatt or megawatt hours. Hmm. If you were to offer consumers transparency, sell them electricity, sell them gas and common energy units, hmm. suddenly they would start to understand. So we hear a lot about, gee, the natural gas range is gonna disappear, must go the way of the dodo because of carbon. Now, conventional natural gas for a kilowatt or, or for uh, a, uh, a kilowatt hour is gonna be about two cents okay. 
Now, we've kind of eroded the Canadian penny, so you got two American That's pennies okay. in your hand. That's okay. Now, we can add carbon costs to that and everything else, but a kilowatt hour delivered as natural gas will be about two cents. Yes. Renewable natural gas could be your green bin waste picked up at the curb, put through a technology called a digester, injected in the pipeline. There's all sorts of other innovations to bring renewable natural gas. Yes. But let's start with that one. Well, that might double or more than double the price. Okay. Maybe that kilowatt hour costs a nickel. Yes. Today, I can open up my electric bill and on peak electricity is going to cost 20 cents. Hmm. So we've got a problem here. Yes. People look at the cost of renewables and say solar electricity, wind, it's coming down. The benchmark is conventional electricity. We look at renewable natural gas and people want to compare it to conventional natural gas. Hmm. Wrong benchmark. You cannot compare renewable gas to conventional fuels. You compare the renewables to the renewables. Mm. So even if gas today was four times, renewable natural gas, if it was four times the price of conventional gas, yes, it would still be as or more cost effective than me buying off-peak electricity in this province. Wow. Now there's wow. one more piece that the policymakers need to get their heads around. Then we can educate the public. If we believe like your trip to Denver, engaging the universities, mm -hmm. everyone talking about a decarbonized economy. Yeah, the cost of the renewable energy matters, the commodity. But I would argue that the only cost that matters going forward is what I'll call all in. Mm. It must be the commodity. It must be the cost to transport and distribute by wire or pipe. And it better include the cost of storage. Mm. And the moment you add all that together, mm. you are compelled to look at how we diversify our renewable energy supplies to be, yes, decarbonized electric grids, decarbonized pipeline grids, decarbonized transportation fuels. And at the nexus of all that, or the hub, as yes, we talked yes, earlier, yes. could be hydrogen. Uh -huh. Could be renewable natural gas. Yeah. But at the end of the day, diversity and keeping economics at the forefront is going to matter. Hmm. And, and so if you could supply your range and your dryer yes. with renewable natural gas for what in this province is probably a 50% savings and you're guaranteed to have renewable energy to those large plug loads, hmm. you just switch them to gas. And your biggest plug load showing up is likely the EV in your driveway. Yeah. That's my biggest plug load. Uh-huh. Now, I love that EV, but I also make a habit of never plugging it in in the daytime, in the daytime. on peak period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I'm going to drive an EV, it has a range extender. And the moment I run out of juice, I'm not putting the burden of that load on the electric grid. Okay. Interesting. Now, it's interesting because, you know, probably November of this last year, the U.S., Thanksgiving holiday, you know, the newspapers were alive with 
all sorts of photographs and write-ups of various electric vehicle owners lined up in large queues at charging stations. Yeah. I paid a little attention to that. Okay. Counted up the number of charging stations that are what they call level three. Mm. Now those typical level three chargers are about 250 kilowatts each. Okay. Plug two cars into them, you know, hammer the electric juice into that battery as quick as you can. Yes. Uh, it's still queuing up cars. But what the policymakers haven't wrapped their heads around, and this is why hydrogen, I think, will also be part of the story. Um, they had 15 level three charging stations in there. Hmm. At 250 kilowatts, that's over three megawatts, megawatts of demand. Yes. Wow. Now, they will argue that, well, it's not always 250 kilowatts, but I've seen the argument that, gee, in order to get these queues and lines of people reduced, what we're going to have to do is start saying maybe they only get 80% and that way we're maximizing the peak charging load and yes. delivery yes. and then move them on to the next charging station. Oh my. Or we'll do something like bring in batteries to then backstop the charger. Yeah. Well, now suddenly I'm losing energy in the battery. I'm losing some energy in the vehicle. Um, you're starting to get to the point where, all right, my biggest concern is... Ontario on our 400 series highways, uh -huh, right. our on-route stations. You go on a long distance travel, you've got probably 15 gas and diesel pumps. It's going to take more than that in level three chargers mm. with full transformation mm. to that future economy that's decarbonized. Start adding up those 22 on-routes alone and you're probably into 80 to 90 megawatts of power. Wow. You're at the point of knocking on the door of a small gas plant no in kidding. order to run that on peak period. Yeah. Now think of what Toyota, Daimler, Hyundai, some of these companies that are diversifying with fuel cell electric vehicles, plug-in electric, hybrids, dedicated electrics. Um, yeah, if we can take hydrogen and through power to gas get that in the off-peak period, mm -hmm. Now we can store as much hydrogen as needed for that next day's cycle. Yeah. Better yet, I can give you all sorts of technologies that diversify how we get the hydrogen and leave the environmental liability of carbon yes. still dealt with. Huh. So we now, in the transport sector for fuel cell electric vehicles, can diversify how we get lower zero carbon hydrogen. And now you'd have, again, a portfolio. Plug-in EVs, hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, etc. So on that last piece, is there still a competition in terms of, or are there still? I mean, we, everybody knows about Tesla and all the you know the Chevy Bolt and all that stuff. But is there still? Are there still kind of big car makers making a hydrogen? You, you you said a couple of times hydrogen electric vehicle. What talk to me? What, what's that drivetrain look like? I mean, it's probably very similar to the. Uh, Chevy Volt that I drive. So okay, that's, okay. Uh, rather than a dedicated electric, I've got about 18 kilowatt hours of battery. Yes. I've got a small range extender engine. Okay. And when the battery runs out of juice, the engine's charging that battery. Now, many people will frown on that. Yes. But when you look at that vehicle, that's basically a platform ready for that small range extender engine and my gasoline tank to be replaced by a fuel cell and the hydrogen tank. Okay. Now, some would say, oh, well, that's a lot of you know, complexity. Yes. Um, I argue that if you 
are so simple on the platform that people are driving, but you back all the complexity up into the energy delivery network, that's one way of doing it. Right. The other way is to give consumers what they want today, which is five minutes to fill a vehicle if and when they run out. And yeah. the reality is the convenience of plugging in at home. You could have that fuel cell electric vehicle with a very modest battery. Yes. They could do a plug-in at home for probably 80% of their driving. And when they do hit the highways, you know that you know with a reasonable infrastructure for hydrogen refueling, people are going to be able to fill in five minutes, move on their way, and the carbon is going to be dealt with because a lot of that hydrogen is sourced through off-peak periods right. or by ways that will use you know, hydrogen production and sequester the carbon. Okay. And um, that delivery though, so let's go back to the on-route. If the on-route has a hydrogen infrastructure, that's not, that infrastructure is not leveraging the natural gas grid. That, that's a dedicated infrastructure. Is that right? Um, I, I'd say you could have flexibility. So today in Europe, a lot of the fuel cell stations, or even in California, yes. uh, a lot of those hydrogen stations for fuel cell electric vehicles, they'll truck in hydrogen the same way they truck in gas and diesel. Okay. Okay. In some cases, they'll put power to gas electrolyzers on site and have on site generation of the hydrogen from the electric grid. In off-peak hours. And be able to manage that, hopefully, okay. to off-peak or, you know, periods where you know the electric grid is uh, zero or low carbon intensity. Yeah. And then there are technologies that are here today but need some bolt-ons. Okay. Uh, so the largest supplies of hydrogen are from what they call steam methane reforming yes. of natural gas. Yes. Um, probably one of the most cost-effective ways to deliver hydrogen without carbon in the near to medium term is what they call blue hydrogen. Okay. We'll take that steam methane reformed hydrogen, yes. which produces almost a pure CO2 stream, okay. and rather than vent that to atmosphere, capture it, sequester it, or hopefully start to use that carbon in various manufactured goods. Aha. Uh -huh. Could be put into cement, yes. could be put into a number of chemicals, a number of feedstocks. And there are technologies that are now doing thermal cracking. Mm. So natural gas is fed in. They will use electroplasma systems for microwaves and basically break the carbon of natural gas away from the hydrogen. The hydrogen's recovered. The carbon drops out as solid carbon. Whoa. That solid carbon is now used to manufacture graphite, carbon black, used in the iron foundry industry, manufacture of batteries, printing inks. These are the things that are not being explored uh -huh. because we have said the only way forward is to electrify everything. And that that that's what you call blue hydrogen. Blue hydrogen. As opposed to... The, the power to gas is, is, is green hydrogen? Is that, uh, is that the terminology? If your that we're, supply of electricity is renewable, right. okay. then it would be green. And I, I think the market is certainly big enough for both. Right. What you're starting to see from the thought leaders out of Europe and others uh, that have spent time looking at this, yes. they can accelerate the end user adoption 
of hydrogen systems yeah. by delivering the most cost-effective hydrogen from natural gas and paying a small fee to permanently sequester the carbon mm. or derive it through carbon and other uses like the methane cracking I talked about. You mentioned um, the, the methane reformer. So is that the tie with Air Liquide? Like I've been to the Air Liquide plant in Hamilton and they have a, a, a steam methane reformer there. So is are they... And I think they're doing it because their clients need both hydrogen and CO2 for, for whatever reason, or they sell CO2 to somebody. But maybe that's the tie with Air, uh, Air Liquide and, and some of this industry. But um, are, are they, um, is that kind of the model where you, you, t you take a steam, you know, they're doing steam reformation now and they would just do it in a bigger way and capture the hydrogen and figure out how to deal with the CO2. Is that... Yeah, so this becomes that next stage of yeah. innovation. Okay. I'd say in Canada, the biggest short-term opportunity for zero or low carbon hydrogen using steam methane reformers and carbon capture uh, is Alberta because okay. they okay. have built proficiency at you know capturing carbon and storing that permanently underground. Okay. Um, here in Ontario, we may not have the same geology, okay. but we have other opportunities because of our manufacturing base. So where Alberta might say, we're gonna use the steam methane reformers, capture the carbon, put it underground and send the hydrogen to other markets. Yes. Here in Ontario, we would use the steam methane reformers, capture the carbon and figure out how the carbon is then converted or upgraded into various goods, carbon capture and utilization, uh -huh. rather than storage. Okay. So whether it's converted into chemicals, whether it's put into concrete, whether it's other permanent aspects like the methane cracking I spoke of. Yes. A lot of that carbon black is in the rubber that is on every tire that is rolling down the uh -huh. highways today. Interesting. So okay. you've got all these permanent storage pathways yes. for carbon yes. that show up in manufactured goods. Okay. Okay. Uh, that's where I'd say the opportunity for yeah. Ontario would be. And what is not well understood, uh, everyone thinks, gee, Alberta, oil and gas, well, they must have the largest refinery sector. No. In Canada, the largest refinery sector is here in Ontario. Wow. Wow. Uh, so when you start to look at how you push adoption or scale up would be a better way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what could we do to encourage refiners who use a lot of hydrogen today yes. to scale up and bring the cost down a lot of our low carbon hydrogen opportunities and green hydrogen yes. and then shift that to mainstream adoption in other parts of the economy? Hmm. Yeah. And, and you mentioned this carbon capture thing is interesting. Did I also hear you say at some point that carbon capture can happen on the back end? Like you, you mentioned it in the context of conventional natural gas as well. Yeah. Did I understand that correctly? Uh, so anything that would be, uh, let, let's say the power to gas with renewable electricity is our green hydrogen. Yes. Uh, conventional hydrogen from natural gas sometimes gets called gray hydrogen. Okay. 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 Uh, and then when we use that production method of natural gas in a steam methane reformer to hydrogen yes. and then fit that with carbon capture yes, and storage, yes. that would become the blue hydrogen. Okay. Or uh, as I had mentioned, the other way to get blue hydrogen, again, you've got cost-effective conventional natural gas is the feedstock. 
you put it into some of these thermal cracking devices yes and you get two products you get zero carbon hydrogen high value used in a number of areas you get the carbon solids as carbon black graphite or other products that then go into high value manufactured goods yeah and you're seeing awards out of places like germany for some of the innovation research and development that's being done on things like thermal cracking okay wow. solar fuels yeah, yeah. Uh, in some cases they're using high intensity solar collectors yes to concentrate enough heat energy yes. that it'll crack conventional natural gas with whoa. no other inputs whoa now wow. if you really want to take things for renewable natural gas yeah you know we could start talking artificial photosynthesis mm. so today renewable natural gas might be landfill gas yes. cleaned up yes could be green bin wastes collected at the curb converted into pipeline quality methane yeah uh, but I can tell you that in different parts of the globe, uh, they are looking at replicating photosynthesis and converting energy from the sun yes. into basically liquid and gaseous renewable fuels. But what's not understood is that even close to home, University of Toronto has two professors that are leading some first-rate research into the development of solar fuels. Wow. And if you really believe that that's where we could be headed, you need things like pipelines to move that yeah. energy and store it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Hmm. So let's talk a bit about RNG. Like you, that can take a bunch of stuff, a bunch of different forms, renewable natural gas. But what's your view on the outlook you know, in Canada, maybe specifically in Ontario, on you know, wh where are we going with renewable natural gases? I think we're just scratching the surface. Mm. Um, you know, I mentioned the barriers to renewable natural gas or its perceived cost premium. Yes. yes. Uh, and again, we got to stop using the benchmark comparing to conventional fuels. Renewables yes. only get compared to renewables. So once we can get our heads around that, I think the opportunities for renewable natural gas become much greater. Mm. Let's take advantage of the low hanging fruit. If we've got landfills yeah. that are being flared, um, if we've got landfills where they're currently taking the gas and generating electricity, but at only about 40% efficiency, yeah. uh, let's get those migrated off and instead upgrade it to pipeline quality fuel, inject it into storage, hold it in storage until the time is right for highest return to the consumer and maximized environmental impact. Let's do what we can on green bin waste through anaerobic digesters, yes. wastewater treatment plants that have anaerobic digesters, that raw biogas, clean it up to yeah. pipeline quality fuels and inject it. But the real opportunity, once we understand the competitiveness of RNG, is on things like forestry wood wastes, hmm. um, other solids, municipal solid waste, why do we even stick it in the ground and then hope we can devise a collection system to capture the methane, right. which is itself a more potent greenhouse gas, albeit for a shorter period of time than CO2. Yes. And instead put it into a device that will convert that to pipeline quality fuels. Hmm. We have a plastics problem in this world. Yes. Now plastics, well, some would argue, well, you don't want to turn that into fuel. That's not renewable. But what do we do today? Uh, we litter it across 
our landscape. It or, breaks or down in the oceans. sun. Yeah. Uh, it liberates gases that are a greenhouse gas warming agent. Yeah. We, in some cases, landfill it and it just slows the process down. Or we do things like incinerate it. Yeah. Uh, now, that's assuming we haven't done our job recycling, but right. increasingly we're seeing challenges with recycling. Yes, yes. Um, when those plastics from Asia were returned back to Canada, they ended up in an incinerator in lower Vancouver. Mm. Now, I would argue that taking those plastics that we can't effectively recycle and converting that into a managed fuel is a far better way of dealing with it than bringing new conventional gas supplies out of the ground. We can now instead say, no, that plastic that was not recycled for whatever reason yes. has been turned into fuel, managed, did not go to the atmosphere as methane. Um, there so are a whole that, bunch of benefits. What's that technology piece there? That so we start to look at the next generation of renewable natural gas solutions. Okay. Um, so these would be gasification systems. Okay. Or what's emerging is something called hydrogen reduction technologies. Okay. And this would be actually using hydrogen at the front end to help break down various organics and huh. turn that into renewable fuels. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. These are right at the point of being um demonstrated okay piloted uh i have every confidence that if we let the markets for renewable natural gas evolve yes these technologies will become as mainstream as what solar production off people's rooftops is today really wow. uh, but we need to remove those barriers to you know well a pipeline only carries conventional fuels. Yeah, no, yeah. it's probably one of the foundational elements of our low carbon economy. Yeah, and yeah, why? Yeah. Because of that seasonal storage. Mm. Wow, very cool. Um, so what, what else, are there any technologies we've talked about that, or we haven't talked about that you're excited about in terms of you know, this, this, this move to a uh, low carbon economy? Yeah, I'd say uh, from an end use, I, I'm waiting for my own house to be fitted with what I is uh, not well understood, but does exist. It's called a natural gas heat pump. Okay, yes. I'm uh, very bullish on this technology. Okay. So uh, in my own home, uh, I've got the solar PV. Yeah. I've got solar thermal. Yeah. That's the priority to my domestic hot water and heating. When that doesn't work, I've got a high efficiency boiler yeah. that is making up the difference. Mm -hmm. um, what does exist but hasn't been brought to the mainstream is natural gas heat pumps. And like an electric heat pump, yes. you're basically using ambient energy yes, right. and capturing that. And the efficiencies of natural gas heat pumps might be 130, 150%. Hmm. Wow. U.S. Department of Energy has identified some technologies that they think could be actually well above that. Yeah, yeah. But we've looked at it and said, well, natural gas is a conventional fuel. It's a problem. Why would I put that on? Yeah. Um, think in terms of renewable natural gas. Now, even if I double or triple the cost in the early years of RNG, but I put a technology on like a natural gas heat pump, and it cuts the consumer's bill by 40%, mm. I've given them 
a zero carbon opportunity to stay connected to our existing seasonal storage, yeah. it will be far more cost effective than trying to run very efficient electric heat pumps. Yeah. Um, and on top of the cost efficiency, those electric heat pumps in this province during a peak demand day will be running mm -hmm. on marginal gas-fired electricity generation. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So right. the clinch. we yeah. need to look at our energy more as an ecosystem. Yes, yes. So to do that, I think I heard you say this earlier, but if you were kind of you know, premier for the day, um, I think I'm hearing you say you, you, you might do two things. You might look at everybody's bills for utilities and insist on a common unit of measure, whether it's kilowatt hour or gigajoule, or, but put everybody on the same metric. That's probably one thing. That, that would be my mandate to the energy regulator. Right. Now, we may not change the actual you know, billing arrangement, but we would at least show on the bill what it is in equivalent terms. Right, okay. Uh, and then the second piece would be, you know, to start talking about the co the stacked cost of every utility, which I think I heard you say was uh, the commodity, the carbon cost, and the storage cost. Those are those the three kind of stacks that. So, so carbon cost, I'll I'll layer on to the if if it attracts carbon costs, which things like renewable electricity or renewable, renewable nat natural gas, gas would not. Yes, right. So yeah, we'd end up with the commodity distribution and transmission costs and the cost of storage. Right. Right. And I think to add to that, I think the first thing I would do, so let me put it in terms that I think many people understand. Um, a lot of people in retirement planning will use an investment advisor. Mm. One would hope that investment advisor is recommending a diversified portfolio. If they came back and said your whole retirement plan is based on one stock, right. or you're only going to go in this one sector, yes. I'd fire said investment planner. <laughs> right, right. Um, I think it's incumbent upon energy planners to, even if the line of sight to the end state is a little bit murky, uh, diversity is key. Yeah, yeah, keeping the options uh, open. And, and therefore, we need to be much broader in our approach. So yeah. while I fully support you know, decarbonizing the electric grid. I myself am practicing distributed energy resources on my own house. Uh, I am advocating strongly that, you know, a key part of this is to ensure that things like renewable pipeline fuels, hydrogen, they all need to play their role. Yeah, yeah. And like your investment portfolio, you know, the next year, one sector might perform stronger than the mm, other. Mm, um, interesting. But we are going to see that ebb and flow through yeah. the different sectors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, in my career, I've watched commodity prices for, you know, oil and natural gas and electricity change by factors that horrify consumers. Yeah, yeah. And yet they find an equilibrium. Yeah. Uh, but that would be the other reason to diversify. You don't want your entire economy bellying up to the bar for just one single commodity. Yeah, yeah. You know, keep yeah. our renewable options open. Yeah. So in terms of, you mentioned a bit about what you're doing, you know, our hope is that folks listening to this are, you know, those who are you know, making or influencing decisions in, in, in large hospitals and universities and, and industrials and maybe some developers, but those who 
are you know in this energy space what are some things that they can be either researching or implementing or you know getting to know more about what are some actionable steps you know as you see this you know you talked about diversity in your portfolio are there other things that people can be doing to um not you know to be prepared for where we're going next yeah i I need to go back to our early discussions on energy efficiency. Mm. I, I don't care whether it's electric appliances, gas appliances, um, whether it's the efficiency of your heavy-duty trucking or your car. Um, double down on it. Yeah. It's been proven time and time again that it's the most cost-effective way to manage energy costs and also you know, advance the lower carbon agenda. Yeah. Once you've done that, I think, you know, a university is a good example. You know, they're facing a lot of pressure for people to say, um, you should not be investing in certain sectors. You know, uh, the oil and gas sector is part of that. In some discussions, it's about pipelines. I would rather see, you know, if someone has a concern about pipelines, if they have a concern about fracking as one means of liberating that gas, rather than advocate against the infrastructure that is a solid return on how you would store future renewable energy, yeah. uh, advocate for greater renewable supplies to fill that pipeline. Hmm. So your universities could be at the forefront of purchasing renewable natural gas, is hydrogen. There, is there a, a market clearing or some mechanism that facilitates that like could you go could i if i got employed by brock university tomorrow could i figure out how to buy rng i'm not getting the molecule but i'm getting the it, it certainly for a sophisticated client like an industrial manufacturer for yes. a university yes uh the tools are there for them to buy this yes okay uh now we, we need to help even that sophisticated buyer understand look this looks expensive Yes. Compared to your conventional fuels, uh, but your comparison is your option of yeah. other renewable things like renewable electricity. Then we can find the buying mechanism. Now, I will say the good news is provinces like Quebec and BC, they're at the forefront of actually providing far greater transparency and signaling that, you know, renewable pipeline fuels will play a role in their economies. Yeah. Um, we're not seeing as much in other provinces yet, but I'm hopeful that just getting this discussion yeah. started, uh, they will start to understand that no matter what your political leaning is, uh, it's probably incumbent on you to say, yeah, that diversified portfolio makes sense. I want to help mm -hmm. move in that direction. Mm -hmm. And then, mm -hmm. you know, that signal can go to energy regulators. Energy regulators can start to say, okay, um, I'm going to open up a certain wedge of the market for that renewable commodity. Yeah. And then your mainstream utilities, other players in the market, they can provide you know, the actual service to buy that renewable energy. Right. Uh, right. Today, it's, it's not as transparent as it should be for mm. the consumer. Mm. Wow. Dave, this has been great. Um, this has been really fun. Where can our listeners find you what's the you know what's the best way to you have a website up and running yet or how can they you know you got so much you know I'm, I'm sure the Ministry of Environment Ministry of Energy are listening to this like how can they how can they get you in front of them to help them uh, make these decisions where do we find you yeah with my uh, new business I've been trying to uh, grow myself into the LinkedIn platform okay, better cool. so uh, 
uh, first name David dash last name Tykrobe. Okay. And if they have that on the podcast as my last name, yeah. uh, then looking for that on the uh, LinkedIn platform will probably get them there Let's, to uh, follow some of the future uh, right on. deliberations okay. on energy I cool. can offer. Well, we'll make sure we link you and we, and we, we, we're big LinkedIn fans too. So we'll make sure we get you posted. And, uh, thank you for, for doing this. This, I, you know, this is all, ultimately this is selfish for me. Like I'm, I'm smarter as a result, you know, and if somebody else listens to it and gets benefit, great. But, you know, this is mostly selfish for me. So I'm, I appreciate you kind of coming in and, and sharing, you know, your wealth of knowledge, but more importantly, your vision for where things are going. You know, Martin has always described you as a visionary in this last, I don't know what it's been, an hour or whatever, it clearly proves that. So thank you very much. Well, Matt, just my appreciation to you and also CEM Engineering. Yeah. I mean, uh, getting these discussions started, yes. expanding the dialogue to your customers and others that uh, are part of your network, um, it's appreciated because cool. uh, at the end of the day, I'm a, a strong advocate for that decarbonized economy. I just want more tools to be used by totally. everyone out there. And yes. I think yeah. uh, we've had a good discussion today on that. So yeah. my appreciation. Yeah. Thanks. We're, we're standing shoulder to shoulder with you in that whole fight for decarbonization. So thank you for listening to this episode of Energy Radio. This is episode 17 uh, with David Typegrobe of Triple E Energy Advisors. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Cool. Thank you, sir. This was fun. This was a great Yeah, day. Yeah, it was great. <laughs>